Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. And the rest of you, you just nothing to do on a Friday night. <laughs> no, I think I'll go listen to a story about the Lotus Sutra. It's a good thing to do. The Lotus Sutra is um, it is the uh, most treasured text of East Asian Buddhism. So in East Asia, China, Korea, and Japan, it is the main text. It is like our Bible is in the West. As a matter of fact, it's so much like our Bible that um, you know how if you study English literature or any of the literature of the West, kind of like as a substrate, underneath it all are, are all of these uh, tropes that come from the Old and New Testament. And, and you can study Milton, Shakespeare, or any contemporary a poet and find that. Well, the same is true. This is what the role that the Lotus Sutra plays in East Asian Buddhism. So, for example, in the Zen tradition, where we don't, uh, we're not so devoted to the Lotus Sutra, we appreciate it, uh, but if the koans and the stories and the poetry all have underneath it the Lotus Sutra. It's like, it's like holds it. It's very beautiful. Um, in, in that way, and so you have to ask, why is this true? And it's, it's just as Shokin said, it is psychedelic. Just this afternoon I was reading one section where all the monks took off their robes and the robes went up in the air and sort of twirled around, and you can just imagine, you know, a hundred thousand golden robes twirling in the air uh, as just one piece of this sutra and the flowers are falling and uh, there are millions upon millions of Buddhas and the time sense is uh, goes from millions of years in the past to millions of years in the future so even though uh, there's no eternal Buddha there's still no way to, to see the time span of the Buddha so this is the kind of uh, survey that the uh, Lotus Sutra gives us. And the lotus, you know, as a symbol, goes back to the, uh, to the very first, the Nikaya Sutras, the one uh, in the early canon. Uh, there's always the reference to the, the beautiful lotus that is, looks like it's pure as it stands above the swampy, muddy, stinking pond that it's growing in. And uh, the symbol is, is that without that stinking, muddy pond, whether you call that Manhattan or Toronto, <laughs> uh, the, the lotus can't blossom. It, needs, it feeds on the Saha world, on the world of endurance, the world we live in. And it is through being present to that world that we're able to bloom and be as, a, as beautiful as a lotus, as pure. And, and that symbol goes all the way back well before the Bodhisattva tradition. Uh, so just being the sutra of the lotus uh, gives you some idea of what it's going to be talking about. 
And I am not going to give you the whole polemical background of the Lotus Sutra, which is interesting. If you're a scholar, you can read that. You can go online and find lots of background information. Because what I'm particularly interested in sharing with you is what does it mean to you? Uh, what, what's helpful about this sutra? And in particular, I thought tonight I'd talk about the burning house, the parable of the burning house. But first, let me just say that what's happened in the first couple of chapters, uh, the burning house is the third chapter of the sutra. In the first couple of chapters, uh, uh, everyone gets together and there are all these people, all these uh, bodhisattvas and uh, shravaka and pratyeka buddhas around. And uh, Shakyamuni Buddha sits in a lotus position and then from a tuft a little white hair right here in the middle of his forehead uh, he emits a light like a like the a most amazing searchlight that you could imagine and it illuminates all the billions and billions of worlds so this is kind of the beginning of the sutra and then the question is, why are you doing this? The Shariputra, his buddy, is always asking him, why are you doing this? And Because I have something to teach, but I can't teach it. Why can't you teach it? I can't teach it. So three times he's asked why he won't teach this sutra. And finally he says, well, you know, I, I won't teach it because people won't understand and they'll be doubtful. And Shariputra begs him a third time, uh, please, teach this sutra. And he says, okay, I will. And when he says that, 5,000 monks leave. They all get up and say, we don't want to hear what he has to teach because we know it's going to be serious change in the Dharma. And uh, I always like to remember that. The thing is that Shakyamuni Buddha doesn't say anything to them. He doesn't say, oh, wait, this is really good for you. He just lets them leave. You know, and as a teacher, I see this. I see this often when I'm teaching. Um, people come to our Zendo full of enthusiasm, and then just, you know, just a hair's breadth of doubt will pass through their minds and not able to stay. <coughs> so... I don't say anything either, <laughs> but they don't uh, come back. And, and so it's always good to ask yourself when you're entering a practice, spiritual practice, whatever you might call a spiritual practice, is to look at what is that doubt and, and really use the doubt. Don't just believe it, but use it. It might take you in a very interesting direction, and you may leave, but at least you will have thought it through. And one has the sense in this sutra that those 5,000 just got up and left. So they missed this great teaching called the Lotus Sutra. So that's kind of the introductory part. Um, so what this sutra does, and I, those of you who were able to hear uh, Shokin's uh, studies last year, is it essentially says that he is presenting a new dharma, a new teaching, but the old teaching of those that heard the, sound, the shravakas, the ones that heard the teachings of the Buddha, and who thought they had reached extinction, had thought they had reached nirvana, were actually not, it's, that wasn't really nirvana. That was just kind of a temporary nirvana. But the Buddha is going to teach us about a full nirvana. He's going to teach us that everyone in this room will eventually become a Buddha everyone in this room. So it's not just for the special few. It's not for the few that go off into a monastery or into a <coughs> cave and sit by themselves. But everybody will become a Buddha. And this is the great teaching of the Lotus Sutra, that all of us will eventually become Buddhas as we practice. Um, now, if you've invested your life in sitting facing the wall in a cave, this may not come as good news to you. 
thus the polemical aspect of this sutra. Um, so, Shariputra asks the Buddha, how, how can we understand this change in the teachings? I mean, how could this be? And the Buddha explains through the first parable of the Lotus Sutra, the parable of the burning house. And uh, the Buddha talks, uh, Shariputra asks him, well, how can I understand this? And, and the Buddha says, well, it's like there's a, a very wealthy man who has a huge mansion with many, many rooms. And uh, and the women will you will just have to realize that you know these sutras are always about men, and uh, <laughs> so the father the Buddha is the father and his followers are the sons. So I'll, I'll move back and forth a little bit, try to break it up a little bit, call it the parent, the mother, uh, but it's the the figure of authority, right? Owns this big mansion. And uh, inside the mansion are the sons, or the children of the Buddha. Also inside this mansion are all manner of poisonous vipers and mad dogs and bats and rats and demons and feces on the floor and uh, uh, horrible, all the things that you could think of that are dangerous and harmful and difficult are in this house. But the kids don't notice this because they're about their games. They're playing their games. Um, For some reason, the parent goes outside uh, through the one narrow door that is possible to get out of this house and uh, is outside in the courtyard uh, when someone says, look, that house is on fire. And uh, the parent turns around, and to her horror, she sees that there's smoke coming out of the windows, and there's screaming demons yelling inside. And the parent thinks, my children are inside. I, want to, I must go in and save them, right, of course. And uh, he runs inside to save the children. Children are ignoring the flames, as a matter of fact, they don't, they're not even conscious that there are flames and that the smoke is getting denser and denser and that all of the animals uh, and demons inside the house are screaming and yelling because the kids are so involved with their games, with their amusements, that they don't pay any attention to the dangers around them. And the parent, you know... Uh, begs them to go outside. They ignore him. So the first thing the parent thinks is, if I could just get a big blanket, grab all the kids and carry them outside, then I could save them. But then there's the problem of this narrow door. The door is so narrow that it would not be possible to carry the kids out. And then the parent thinks, well... Maybe I could just put them all on this bench. <laughs> and this is sutra. You know, sometimes you just wonder, who translated that? Um, <laughs> this, uh, maybe I put them all on the bench. I can carry them through. But no, the bench is too wide and can't go through the narrow door. So he tries to think of what would it be? What could he do to get these kids outside to save them from the burning house? the house that's filled with danger and suffering that they don't notice because they're so busy playing their games. And then he, he recalls what their favorite toys are. He recalls that they have always talked about a deer cart and a goat cart and an ox cart. And so he promises the kids that if they come outside, each one of them will receive either a deer coat deer cart, a goat cart, or an ox cart. And they think, this sounds like a pretty good idea. 
And so they, of their own willpower, go through the narrow door and run outside into safety. Once they're outside, they say to the parent, where are our carts? Now we want our goat cart, our deer cart, and our ox cart. And uh, the parent is very wealthy and thinks, well, I'm not going to give them the deer, goat, and ox cart. Instead, I'm going to give them something much more fabulous than that. Each one will receive a, a white ox cart that is a gigantic cart filled with musicians and all kinds of wonderful, wondrous objects to play with and enjoy. And so he, that's what he did. He had constructed these fabulous white ox, a great white ox cart for his children, and each one received uh, this cart. And so the Buddha says, uh, and, that, and that is how I am now offering all of the arhats, all of the people who have practiced all these years, I'm now offering them a much greater cart, a much greater teaching than the original teachings. Completely different. Much, much more wonderful. And then he says, tell me, Shariputra, was the parent lying to the, to the kids when he promised them these goat carts, deer carts, and ox carts, plain ox carts? And then when they went outside, they were given a great ox cart. Was that a lie? Shariputra says, no, it's not a lie, because they were saved from the burning house. Hmm. So I think of my own life in the Dharma and how even in the world of the Dharma, I can get so caught up with the playthings of the Dharma that I might not notice that I'm living in a burning house. And this is the point of this parable for all of us, the the world that we live in day to day, the world of inequality and injustice, the world where it looks like we're comfortable and yet half the world is starving. We are living in a burning house. But we might not notice it because we're so caught up with our games. The, the sutra even says the kids were so addicted to their toys. And, you know, I think in the past we might have thought of... Uh, different kinds of toys, but these days, you know, you just can see all of these mobile devices, these wireless devices that we're, that we're caught up with. So, so caught up that we don't see the suffering that's all around us. We don't see the demons, our own personal demons, and the external demons that exist in our society. We don't realize that we are in a burning house. And we can we really can see this uh, when in you work in addiction circles, uh, work with people who are not even aware of that that they have no life of joy, no life of generosity, of no spiritual life. That is burning house. To not be aware of one's interconnection to the to all of life. So the question is did was that a falsehood that he taught when he said that he was going to give them one thing and instead gave them something that was much greater. Is that a falsehood? He had to do something because he couldn't carry them out, the point being, of course, that we all have to 
carry ourselves out that door. We all have to carry ourselves into our spiritual life. It simply cannot be done by someone else. And many of us have to go through that door quite a few times. (laughs) It's not like once and done. It's narrow. It's hard to get through. It's constraining. Kind of like practice, what we in Zen call practice. It's developing uh, a quality of endurance, of really holding the importance of your practice, the importance of interconnecting with all beings. Getting through that narrow door is not easy. So, did the father really betray his children? Did the mother betray her children by offering carts that he knew that they would want and then giving them something completely different? This question of betrayal kind of interests me in terms of spirituality. In a way, you could say the children betrayed the burning house by leaving it. We Sometimes we have to betray a way of life in order to embrace a new one. And that's not easy. Betrayal in the sense of leading astray is what I'm trying to get at. Um, kind of, of deserting something, of abandoning something, of putting something aside. You know, I, I, frankly, I'm inspired by an article I just read uh, in the London Review by uh, Adam Phillips called <coughs> Judas's Gift. And... Uh, so in that article, Adam Phillips is, it suggests that we look at the word betrayal in a different kind of way. Um, you know, we think of it as a violation of trust, uh, but he points out that sometimes what we have to do is betray the old for the new. Sometimes betrayal is an innovation. And in his example, which I just loved, was uh, because betray my age, uh, was when uh, Bob Dylan went electric. (laughs) Remember that time? Somebody here may remember that time. I mean, people were outraged. And apparently, at that famous concert in London, when he did that, someone from the audience yelled out, Judas! Judas, the ultimate betrayal. And then Phillips goes on to suggest that if we look carefully at the story of the biblical Judas, you know, you find that the desert fathers believed that uh, Judas was working, was in cahoots with Jesus to help Jesus to do what he had to do. Right? So the great innovation that occurred in Christianity was a result of Judas' betrayal of the old in order to help Jesus to accomplish his task. So the reason I like this story, I like this way of thinking about it, is, is that in fact... In my life, and the people that I work with, I recognize how important it is for us to constantly look and betray our old attachments, our old certainties about the way to do things, about our lives, to to let them go, to abandon them, so that we can be fresh, and meet the reality 
directly. I translate dharma as reality. It's just reality. As it truly is. So, I wonder what the burning house is for you. We all have a burning house. A place of hellish surroundings. Which we call our amusements. Our place of addiction and distraction. So the betrayal of the burning house for us is the letting go of what it is that keeps us from recognizing our true nature, who we are, our interconnectedness with everyone, our responsibility to the world, our direct meeting of reality. First, we must recognize that we're even in a burning house, that these things we call our amusements are not our cherished possessions, but in fact are our addictions, so that we can betray that burning house, let go. For some of you, it might be reorienting your profession is a real hard one. Moving from unwholesome work to wholesome work. When we do that, such a change in our whole being. Really look at how how we work what we do professionally, how it serves reality. It's so important, and you know, anyone I know who's shifted has always just been so happy, so joyful. You know, in those Lotus Sutra, people on every page are dancing with joy. (laughs) They're always dancing with joy, and this is what happens, you know. Maybe some of the toys, you maybe you don't have as many toys, but that might not be a bad thing. There's a different feeling. There's a different feeling about it. I can't tell you how many people I know who have shifted their positions and how, how good they feel, anchored in life, riding that big white ox cart. Or it might be in your relationship. You know, we can go on for years in a relationship not directly meeting the other person, whether it's an an intimate relationship with, with a partner or with our friends or family. We can just keep on in that burning house going through the motions, not being willing to do the work to get through that narrow door, to have a vibrant, living relationship with with people that you love or that you have difficulty with. Not being willing to do that work to get out of that burning house, the falseness of so many relationships, is we're simply not willing to go there and betray that old set of ways to get by and to meet directly those that are in front of us. Or that notion that we have of our spare time. It's kind of a peculiar phrase anyway. My spare time. You know, if you are your t- our time, you're all, if you are the time of your life, then what is this spare time? This extra time over here? It's not me. 
how we spend our, our life in pleasure. For it not to be trivial, but truly joyful. Not to be another addiction. Not an unhealthy distraction. But instead, true, joyful experience of life. For me, there's nothing greater than serving others. Serving the earth. Experience of service as a way to live your life opens you in so many ways. There's so much to see, so many different ways that people can be. So, so much artistic expression that you can experience when you are truly involved with others and serving others in the way that are, is, you are uniquely suited to do. The opportunity is everywhere. And you will dance with joy. You really will dance with joy when you enter that world of service. Like those children danced with joy when they saw the big white ox cart. So it's by our own effort that we do this. And you know, I, I can see it in my own life so much, you know, this, yeah, I see that narrow door over there, but you know, I'm very busy with my devices and uh, uh, I've got all these things to do and, and caught up and can avoid for a long time really moving through that narrow door. I was uh, one of those people that Shokan mentioned early on uh, that I, I read about Buddhism. I read about Zen for years. I thought it was really, really cool. <laughs> uh, but until I got my butt on a cushion, I had no idea. And in a way, I was like in a burning house. I was literally in a burning house because, boy, I'm an addicted type. I get just take a look at something <laughs> made of Velcro somehow. Uh, you know, so there with a glass of wine and a cigarette reading about Zen. <laughs> I, I hit a responsive chord there. <laughs> no, it's hard to get through the narrow door, you know. And only we can do it. You know, you can have, you can, you can beg as the, do, as the father or the mother, beg the, the kids to go out the door. Please, please, it's burning, it's smoking, can you see, can you see? But until you yourself recognize that there's something on the other side of that door that you really want, you are not going to go through that door. Right? And what's on the other side of that door is a life that has meaning. A life that has meaning. It's really, it's the most powerful thing. Then no matter what the situation is, you're freezing, you're hungry, you still have five miles to go up that hill, it doesn't matter. As you're serving and you have meaning in your life. It's marvelous. So even when you're so-called suffering, you're dancing for joy. So this whole sutra, which is about a lotus flower and how we can make it bloom for ourselves. Reminds me of this line uh, that a nice nin wrote. And the day, day came when the risk it took to remain tight inside the bud was more painful 
than the risk it took to blossom. The risk it takes to blossom, to move through the narrow door, to betray the old way, the old ideas of your life, and to really, to really move into a whole new way of living filled with meaning. Will you take the risk? Will you abandon your burning house? Blossom into your true nature? Experience the world just as it is? That's really the question. So before we have a conversation on this, I I think it'd be good for us to just sit quietly for a few moments and consider my question. Will you take the risk? Will you betray your burning house? Will you blossom into your true nature? and experience the world as it is. I'd like to hear some of your comments, but before I do so, I'd like to read you a couple of poems, short poems from the Japanese tradition. One is from the um, 10th century, Kento. Although we heard that there were three carts at the gate, it turned out to be something beyond our imagination. 
That's sweet. And then GN wrote, I know this is a splendid cart, and yet I never thought of writing it. <laughs> now, these are the Japanese. They kind of all have this very elevated uh, quality to their poems about... The, but the Chinese, not so much. Uh, here's one from the Tang Dynasty. Oh, Hanshan, this is. Dilapidated in ruins, this cottage of weeds, inside mushrooming fire and smoke. May I ask you, you many children, you've been alive a total of how many days? Outside the gate there are three carts. He invites them to take them, but they're unwilling to leave. Full of food, stomachs distended and fat, all of them stupid, obstinate fools. <laughs> So, just to give you a sense, that's over three three different centuries of um, the kinds of, you know, no direct reference to the Lotus Sutra, but definitely talking about it. Um, so, you may have something to say. Maybe yes. we can let some of the people at the back move, move in, because some people came late and they can't see. Yeah. So, so maybe the people in some chairs in the middle can just move back. So some of the people who are standing at the back are wanted. Oh, look at all the heads sitting on the floor. Can move up a little so they can see Roshi. And there's two seats at the front here, front row, that are available. Elaine, you can take a seat up here. There, there's, a, there's a cushion there already. Don't be shy. Rory, there's a spot right here in the very, very front. Is that better? No. Okay. Uh, does anybody want to make a comment or something? Have something to say? Anything snag tonight? Yes, in the back, I see your hand. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the teaching. I had a question. Um, the, the parable is very powerful in that the parents knew that the children were better outside the burning house. Is the difficulty for us not that in our burning house we exit to an environment of uncertainty? And if we're uncertain, how can we move with confidence? Hmm. <clears throat> well, tell me what it certainty is. <laughs> Our house may be burning inside, but outside it may be worse. I see. So you're certain that the ha- that the house is burning, but you're not certain what's outside the through the narrow gate. Many people are content with being in bad places because they believe some a place away from that could be worse. Is that the way you feel? Uh I don't know. I'm not sure yet. Yeah. But I think uncertainty is a very a powerful force in keeping people in places they perhaps may be better off leaving. Uh-huh. That's an interesting idea. Thank you. Well, I really don't know <laughs> anything to say about that. I mean, it's an interesting idea. Um, I guess when the house gets to be uh, really burning, I have I have a friend who's dying now. I'm very conscious of of that um, and uh, so there's uncertainty about what's on the other side for her she's a long time in student like for 30 years and so she's has a lot of discipline and a lot of insight into uh, what it is to be alive and to be connected to the world and so, of course, there's, there's uncertainty about her, her movement now. She's going into death. She's letting go. Um, and, uh, and yet there's this powerful sense that, that this is absolutely the thing that is happening with her, and so she wants to be present with it. And the idea of uncertainty to me is, well, it's an idea. It's not 
the actual presence of life itself. Do you understand what I'm saying? So when you're dying, you're dying. And, and if you can be alive to that, it's, not, it's, it's a wonderful thing. It's another passage. Right? Anyone else? Yes? Oh, let, this this oh. one, this guy, and then you. That's <laughs> yes, all right. Uh, I wouldn't mind responding because that comment struck me. Uh huh. And I remember there was a point when I went through a lot of change in my life, and to go through that change, the turmoil, I tried to remember that the point between the two states of stability, the point between the yin and the yang, is a very rich place. It's, it's a place of turmoil, but it's also the place of, of fertility. Uh, the two states are, are very, they're very static, but the place of the halfway point, where they both meet, is very rich. And that is where things grow, where the, the muck of things are. And you have to remember that. I think it's, your memory is, it's one of the most powerful tools that you can have. Uh, because you remember these things, you remember the formula or turmoil that you've gone through before, and you remember that you've gone through them, you've arrived somewhere else through that turmoil. And I think that's the way to do it, the courageous conversation <coughs> Hmm. Thank you. And yes? Um, I was wondering um, about the, the parable is, is indeed very powerful in, in precise in its meaning. And in lots of ways sounds brief in the sense that it um, allows one a sense of clarity and vision when going through an hour door. Mm -hmm. Um, but the process in reality is much longer, right? mm. and and I wonder where you derive where you derive strength when when you are in rooms full of smoke and you can't yet really see. You can feel. Um, you can feel. You can feel. You can sense that there's something. That there might be a door, or there might be a different room. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when you are yet in that. That stage. Mm -hmm. Where do you derive strength from? Well, of course, I'm very I'm Zen training for many years, and the first thing I want to do is grab my hara. Uh, that kind of only you. I mean, that's what the narrow door really symbolizes: is, is no one can take you out, but you yourself. And so, in the moment of that fear or depression. There is an opportunity to take a breath, to re, to move back into you yourself, and trust. And, and, and the Lotus Sutra is all about this trust. I mean, this whole thing about we are all Buddhas. What does that mean? That means that we're all awake. It means that we have to recognize that we have within ourselves the power and the ability to find that door. And it can be really hard, of course, at different times in our life. It's very, very difficult. And I'm, I'm not minimizing that at all. Uh, and yet there is, there is a way. And it is, it is really our own inner strength. And that's what the parable, for me, is about. I mean, as, you know, a scholar will tell you the parable is about something entirely different. Entire, it's about the superiority of the Mahayana point of view. <laughs> but uh, that's no fun for us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Anyone else have any comments to make? Yes? Seems like... You know, I'm sorry I didn't ask people's names before. Mm -hmm. I'm going to start with you if you just say your name. Grant. Grant. No. 
the, the leaving of the burning house mm -hmm. and, and the, maybe the discovery of the white cart um, seems very promising and then it always seems that like, oh this one's on fire too <laughs> this one might be burning mm -hmm. yeah, good good and that maybe the practice is that they're walking through the doorway or maybe the practice is more not getting to the cart but um, actually not getting to the cart that that doorway moment yeah could keep stretching on yeah just this endless doorway <laughs> my life is an endless Very doorway <laughs> that's nice Grant actually uh, all of our senior teachers are giving talks on these uh, sutras and, and one of them did say that, that she envisioned uh, this great white ox cart as like a New York City subway <laughs> and <then laughs> what you got when you got through the door was a, a pass to get on the subway, which, you know, can sometimes be joyful and sometimes not. But it still gets you where you're going. <laughs> Thank you, Grant. Yes? I think, Your name? Sorry, Jackie. Jackie? Yeah. Um, I, I think about this parable all these different ways. So uh -huh. is, you know, Good. What, what brought me sort of to Buddhist practice was, you know, the promise of that, you know, that small little ox cart, and I ended up getting some much bigger, more interesting, and, and ah. exactly what I expected. At the same time, I'm also thinking about the whole fire, see, you know, recognizing the fire, and the motivation to, to move. And, and uh, I, when I think about big movements in my life, quite often, I don't really feel I made the choice to move towards something better. I felt like I, I, felt like I moved to get away from something I, I knew that I couldn't tolerate anymore. Mm -hmm. So it's, I think, a struggle for me in my life is learning to recognize when to move, not just because something is intolerable, but because there's something else that's better. Right. And that's a difficulty for so like ending a relationship or changing a career. It's usually there's something where, you know, either any relation, my big relation with my partner made that choice, and my big decision was being present with it and being okay with the process that it took to deal with that. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't, you know, recognizing that the relationship was on house on fire. Right. Someone else recognized that, I dealt with it. So, so I'm interested in the dis, both the discernment of there is a fire significant enough to make me want to move, but also there's an ox cart, finding an ox cart out there. Mm -hmm. It's a different aspect of motivation. It's true. Uh, what, as you speak, I really I do hear that. It, you know, that I can think of in my own life uh, that just to, to the cessation of, say, an addiction. The cessation of, addic of an addiction is not like a great ox cart outside, <laughs> but it's the end of addiction. So, in a way, it could also be that just this, the ending of something that is uh, terrifying to you or that you recognize as unwholesome for you and, and for in, in a relationship, for example... And, and so you don't say, oh, and this is going to be really great. <laughs> but you're going to say, this is going to stop, you know, whatever, whatever that is. And, you know, parables are, parables are bridges from, you know, we, we take something ordinary that we can kind of understand a little bit. And they're kind of a bridge for us to then kind of get some bigger kind of, or you could say bigger, but kind of spiritual uh, more uh, interrelated and interconnected vision of the world that we can't quite see uh, in our ordinary life. Or if we just, talk, if I were to talk, give a lecture on emptiness, for example, <laughs> put you all to sleep. But a parable is it can be very useful, but it's just a bridge, you know, and it it so it'll fall apart as we continue to to work on it. Um. Yes. I just uh, thought it came uh, into my head as speaking to the gentleman in the back about um, about thinking about it, may, it might be scary outside the house. Yeah. Or uh, intimidating or whatever. <clears throat> but I'm just thinking about sometimes leaving the house, touching the cart, 
come back into the house. <laughs> Revolving door. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever you can do, and eventually you hang around the cart a little bit longer, and that takes a little bit more precedence, or it's more comforting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can see the burning house a little bit better, and whatever you need to do to support that, uh, you do. So, I don't know. I'll just Actually, you know, that sounds very much like the gradual path. <laughs> Uh, you know, we talk about, and, which, and, and that's just an idea too, the sudden and gradual path, but it's certainly true. I mean, this, in order to make a point, this, they just go out once, but I think you're very much describing my experience and the experience of many people that I know. Is, uh, we, we start to sit, maybe the first time you begin to uh, enter a meditation practice, and it's like, oh, wow. This is really something, you know. I'm going to do this every day. <laughs> and then the, the next year, <laughs> you go back. <laughs> and maybe you keep circling around, you know. It depends on, it's just on so many things, so many opportunities, and so forth. Yeah. But I, I, I just, the thing is about this burning house, though, is, is the tragedy of so many lives that are lived without ever looking up from the video game. Yeah, that's that's the tragedy. Yes. Hi, Victoria. Victoria. Hi. Uh, <coughs> I'm actually struck by the uh, the analogy of, of parents and a child. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I'm a, I'm a mom, and, and so I immediately identify with that. You know what's the best possible way I can help my child if, if they're well, whenever in any kind of situation where I feel like um, maybe it's in my daughter's best interest for me to help her out, find a door. But I was thinking how what a lovely image that is for because I've dealt with a lot of addiction in my life and realizing, but I so and I can get caught in the trap of that and be in the burning house and. Hanging on, but not willing to even look to see if there's a door. And but I have a parent in me too. I have yeah, the potential good. for parenthood, for my true nature, my the and to 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 hold the child and say, you know, there, there's there's <clears throat> something outside that door that I want them to see. Mm-hmm. I want you to try to go somewhere else. Right it's okay. You put the game down. So that I develop a trust in that parent within me that's able to be willing to have the courage to explore reality as it is. Hmm. So that I so that the child can let go. So I was just really struck by that. Yeah, I like that interest psychic uh, uh, analysis or interpretation of the parable. I think that's very I think that's kind of what Jackie was getting at too. Yeah. Thank you. Very nice. Okay. Um, I was thinking about the burning house. It's like, like how many times we uh, get out of the burning house like, without knowing so, like by maybe doing things that force our lives to like kick us out of the house in a way. You know, by behaving uh, certain ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, it seems to me that you're kind of going to exactly what Victoria's point was, that it, that very much it's an internal 
kind of realization, and ha- and and the, it requires a kind of a courage that you're talking about. So it reminds me of another parable that's not in the Lotus Sutra. <laughs> Something uh, I don't know why it just came to mind. Um, is it all right if I tell a Hasidic parable? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I know you've been waiting for this. It's called the Rooster Prince. Or you, do you know this? Do you want me to do it in Hebrew? <laughs> um, it's a uh, parable I like to use when I'm working with uh, some uh, people who are caregivers and so forth. There was a, a prince of a, a wonderful uh, little country in East, Eastern Europe. And uh, one day he uh, took off all his clothes and got under the uh, table and uh, said, I'm a rooster, I'm a rooster, and started eating food off the floor. And the king said, oh, my God, this is my son, my prince, and um, he can't, there's no way he can run this kingdom if he's uh, completely crazy like this. What can I do? And a rebbe came in and said, I can cure your, your your son, the rooster prince. And he said, oh, please do that. I'll give you, give you great, a great gift if you can do this. And so the Rebbe took off all his clothes and got under the table with the prince and started eating his food off the floor. And, uh, oh, the prince said, oh, you're a chicken too. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I'm a chicken too. And so they sat, and, they, and for several days they ate the food off the floor uh, under the table. And then one day the Rebbe said, you know what, it's cold here. I'm going to put on a pair of pants. So he put on a pair of pants. And the, the prince said, you can't do that. You're a chicken. And chickens don't wear pants. And he says, listen, I'm a chicken and I can wear pants if I want to wear pants. So the prince said, well, yeah, it is cold here. Maybe I will put on a pair of pants. So he did that. And then a few days later, the rabbi put on a shirt. <laughs> and uh, the same thing happened, and the rooster prince uh, put on a shirt. And a little while later, the uh, rabbi said, you know, I don't like eating here off the floor. I want to eat at the table. So he got up to eat at the table, and the prince got up to eat at the table. And they said that after that, the rooster prince was cured, and he became a great king in the kingdom. So the point of this parable uh, is the joining with rather than the nagging, the ordering, the joining with. It's just a great parable. I love it. And I, it came to mind and, and something about the, uh, the, the parent inside that helps and then your remarks uh, just brought that that old parable to mind in the sense that, you know, uh, we just use these stories in a way that can help us, just as we use all of this training that we do in, in whatever Buddhist or spiritual tradition you have. You know, the training is useful. I mean, you can see that I really uphold a certain ritualistic uh, forms. And if you come to my Zendo, it's in the middle of Manhattan. There are all these quirky people there, and we're all with, you know, and the bowing and everything. And uh, it's it's just it's kind of weird and strange, but it's 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 a way to hold us. But we all recognize that it's just an expedient means. It is and of itself nothing. Even the most precious thing, meditation, is and of itself nothing. Only as a means to get you out from under the table or out of the burning house. Huh? And that frees us so much. Then we don't become fundamentalists. I mean, there is danger. Uh, So be careful. Hold it, but lightly. Okay, thanks. What shall we do now? How about go to sleep? Go sleep. Let's go sleep. Will people come tomorrow? I hope you come tomorrow. Yeah.
So tomorrow morning, if you're uh, so if if you say that you're interested still in coming tomorrow, then you can see.